Well, I just wanted to, uh, again, take a moment to thank you for your flexibility, uh, and uh, we're going to need your flexibility for the next few weeks. A lot of things are going on uh, around here, especially next door, and this week I, I learned that firsthand. Not only are, are we working on renovations in the sanctuary, but, uh, but all the men's rooms next door are tore up, too. We're, we're renovating them, and so, and so it's really, it was really noisy next door all week, and so I I, I, uh, I retreated to Lancaster Bible College quite a few mornings to the library just to get some quiet. And, and you know, sometimes it could be frustrating, right? That, you know, these inconveniences and... and, and uh, but as I was thinking, you know, I'm thankful that not only do we have a place where we can gather here this morning, and thankful for those who uh, came in early and helped set up sound and everything like that, but... Uh, but around the world, people worship our Savior in far less than we do today. And they have the joy of the Lord in their hearts. And, and so it, just because next door is a little bit of a construction zone, uh, there's no reason to be frustrated for that. And we just encourage your flexibility. Uh, we may need your help in, in a few uh, weeks as we come back here to set some, uh, some chairs up. And we'll email out. And if you could help us out, that would, that would be great. But uh, uh, let's, let's just, again, just pause and, and just ask God to... Uh, to direct our time here this morning. Lord, we're thankful that, uh, that you've given us the resources to, uh, uh, to have next door a construction zone. And Lord, we're thankful that, uh, that you've provided, and we would be faithful with those resources, because and, and, uh, it's your house, and, and, and everything we do, we want you to bring honor and glory. And Lord, as I was thinking about the construction zone all last week next door and everything being tore up. Lord, I pray that, that as we come before you this morning, that we would come with an attitude that our lives are a construction zone. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work through your word molding and shaping and challenging us to be more like you. Father, we're thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you have given us the book of Colossians to, uh, to look at this morning in these next few weeks. And, and Lord, it's our prayer that, that we would see you clearly. And not only would we see you, but we'd seek to live for you. that others would see you and your love in our lives. And we would do it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I was thinking a little bit about communication and how communication has changed over the years. Uh, my parents tell me that when my sister and I were born, uh, they were the first grandparents for, for, they were the first grandkids for both sets of my grandparents. And so it was a big deal. And, and uh, twins, having twins was a big deal. And, and, and uh, when we were born, my, my dad's parents were in India. They were visiting missionary friends in India. And so in order for them to, to find out the news, my dad had to send a telegram to their hotel that they were staying in to let them know the terrible two have arrived you are grandparents. Come back quickly and help. Uh, 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 but but so, so we were announced by telegram. And I'm like, that's so foreign to us today, isn't it? 
Uh, growing up, uh, when I was in elementary school, I had a friend whose house, ha- their, their house phone was a party line. It wasn't a private line. I don't know if you remember party lines, but party lines is when you shared the, the same telephone circuit. So, so sometimes when you tried to call them, if the line was busy, you know, probably the other person that they shared with was on the phone. Or if you were at their house, what we did sometimes, we'd pick up the phone and listen in on what they were talking about. So that, that was a party line. That's so foreign to us today. Uh, we just don't think about that anymore. And, and then I remember when I, when I started at my first church, I got a pager. Clipped one of those things on my belt, and, and I got little, little messages or like numbers to kind of call back. And I thought, well, this is the greatest thing in the world. I have this little device on my belt that, that I can receive just short messages or, or just a message to, hey, call this person. And uh, a pager. Amazing ways to communicate. Well, communication has changed quite a bit over the years. And you know, the way we communicate care has changed quite a bit too. Uh, This week I dug in my closet and I pulled out a shoebox full of notes that, uh, that Dana has sent me over our years together. And and I'm sure she has a shoebox somewhere, and it's much bigger than, than from my notes to her. But, uh, but mine's a pretty big shoebox that I, that I looked at. And, and as I pulled out these, this, this shoebox of love notes, I noticed there's some differences. First of all, there's some envelopes. And in those envelopes came notes and cards that communicated that she cared about me. And there was quite a few of those. And as I dug a little bit further, I found some emails uh, right after we got engaged, Dana went and studied for a semester in Spain, and, and at that time, you know, it was really expensive to call across, across the ocean, and so I maybe talked to her twice on the phone the whole time, and so we sent emails back and forth. As a matter of fact, Dana had to go to the corner email cafe to send and receive emails. I know, kids, it's like Stone Age. It's like so long ago. And so there were those emails that, that we communicated back and forth. And now if you think about how do we communicate care, we communicate care by emojis. We've gone from envelopes to emails to now texts full of emojis, of hearts and, and hugs and, and high fives. And, and so, you know, the way we communicate that we care for one another has changed quite a bit over the years. Well, this morning, we're gonna, you might say, well, what does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, this morning, we're going to start our two-month study through the book of, of Colossians. And very clearly up front, I think it's important for us to understand that Colossians is a letter of love. It's a letter of love. And so Paul is communicating that he cares And as we start our journey, I want to go over some pertinent information that we need to understand as we kind of journey through Colossians, allow for some personal introspection, and then end up with some purposeful application. And so let's lay some groundwork as we get started, and let's talk about the setting of the book. Colossians was written between 60 and 62 AD, and at that time, Rome ruled the world. Rome ruled the world. From Britain and Spain to Asia, Rome was in control and Nero was the emperor who ruled. And the city of Colossae was in the Roman province of Asia, which is present-day Turkey. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that they had a great military. 
and its strength helped it to acquire nations in combat and assume control over them while still allowing those individual cultures to continue. So their great military force allowed them to expand, and as they expanded and kind of consumed these nations, they still allowed them to, to continue to practice their culture. And at the height of the empire, the, uh, Rome was made up of 40 provinces that had governors appointed by the emperor or appointed by the senate. And these, these governors just basically kept the peace and they collected taxes. But other than that, they were kind of, the, these, these uh, civilizations were free to kind of do their own thing as long, as long as they were peaceful and they paid their taxes. And as the empire grew, its engineers built this amazing system of roads that connected the provinces to Rome. And that's where we get the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And so these roads shrunk the size of the world. I mean, it was a pretty amazing thing in its day. It shrunk the size of, it, of the world. It allowed uh, the, the reach of Rome to, to extend beyond its current borders. It eased the transportation of, of goods and services and, and allowed the sharing of different religious beliefs and practices. Before these roads were built, travel was very costly and it was very dangerous. And so Rome was in control, and they built this great framework of roads that allowed travel to and from in the empire. And with travel came all different kinds of information flowing back and forth. And you could say those roads were the precursor to the internet, the new information freeway, right? Uh, those roads shrunk the world in that time, and the internet has shrunk our world and allowed information to flow back and forth. And so that's the setting. Uh, let's talk about the situation. In the midst of the Roman rule, the Church of Colossae was started. And as soon as it started, it faced a serious situation. It faced a serious problem that it was facing. And the problem was the threat of syncretism. And syncretism simply is is the fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. And in Colossae, there were false teachers. There were false teachers encouraging Christians to compromise the gospel by adding pagan mysticism and Jewish, Jewish legalism to the gospel. And as Rome added territory and built roads to travel, these roads allowed the sharing of beliefs. And practices, and so there was this kind of melting point of, of religious beliefs, this syncretism, and, and it was threatening the church at Colossae, threatening to add things to the gospel, to pick from Jewish legalism, to pick from pagan mysticism, and add things to the gospel. And the final thing as we kind of lay the groundwork for this book is we need to see the supremacy of the Savior. As we'll go through chapter by chapter, it'll be clear that Christ is supreme. Colossians is written to communicate that Jesus Christ is superior and salvation is solely found through faith in him. And so that's kind of some of the groundwork that we're laying. Uh, the setting and the situation and, and ultimately that Christ is sovereign. And I think that's important for us to, to recognize that and realize that as we move forward from these weeks and, and spend some time in Colossians. So let's start in the beginning and look at the greeting. 
in verses 1 and 2, if you want to turn your Bibles there to Colossians 1, 1 and 2, it starts off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. And so we start off and we're introduced to the author, the apostle Paul. People say Paul is arguably the most important and influential person in history apart from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He had a huge influence in the history of the church and overall history of the world. And in the ancient world, when you wrote a letter, you began it by stating your name, the name of the writer. And so Paul begins by identifying himself and his co-laborer, Timothy. And if, if you were here with us in our last uh, Sunday school series, we went through the book of Acts. And we were introduced to Paul. We knew that he grew up, he was a Jew and had Jewish teaching. He was trained by the Pharisees. And, and, and in Acts uh, uh, 7 and 8, we see Saul was there when, when the Pharisees stoned Stephen for his faith in Christ. And after that, Saul took to persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And then in, in, in Acts 9, we learned that uh, he took up to traveling beyond Jerusalem to spread the persecution of Christians. And, and he was on his way to, the, to Damascus when he had the Damascus Road experience. When he met the risen Savior. When he was blinded by Jesus, but spiritually he began to see. And he realized that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. And the only way to be saved is to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we see his, his transformation in, in, in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts 13, 19, it's the first place we see the familiar name Paul that we see a lot in the rest of the New Testament. And as a Jewish citizen, a Jewish and Roman citizen, the apostle's full name was probably Saul Paulus. For many Jews had both a Jewish and a Roman name. So we're introduced, he's, he's called Paul in Acts 13, 19. And in Acts 21 to 28, we see the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, were upset with Paul that he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and that he was not requiring them to follow their, 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 their Jewish religious rules and regulations. And so he, he, they had him arrested in Jerusalem. And he appealed to Caesar, and so he was taken to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. So Paul is arrested. He is in prison. And that's where he is as he writes the book of Colossians. He's in prison. And Timothy was present with Paul as he was in prison in Rome, providing care and encouragement. And it's interesting that in three of his prison letters, he mentions Timothy. Not only in Colossians, but in Philemon and, 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 and Philippians as well. And Timothy is there to, to minister and care for Paul. You know, in the beginning of their relationship, Paul was the one that was ministering and caring for Timothy. He was his spiritual son who he took him under his wings and, and, and he was just encouraging him. And now at the end of Paul's life, the, the situation has reversed. And Timothy is there to care and to love his mentor and to, to provide help to his mentor, Paul as he's in prison. And many believe the inclusion of Timothy in the beginning of, of Colossians and his signature at the end means that Timothy was his secretary. Paul is the writer of this book. He is telling Timothy what to write, and Timothy is writing it down. 
And so in the very beginning, it's important for us to realize that this, this letter to the church, of Coloss- uh, the church in Colossae was, was written by Paul. And next he goes on and he talks about his authority, that he's a divinely appointed ambassador of God. And in verse 1 he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not a self-appointed courier of messages. He's a divinely appointed ambassador or representative of God, commissioned by God to communicate the message of God's word to the world. He was appointed by God to be his ambassador. What a different process than our current presidential uh, election, right? I mean, I am so tired of turning on the TV and hearing from our candidates, and we're not even at the conventions yet. We're not even at the point where we get to, to, to choose. It's a different process here. Paul didn't simply choose this for his career path. He didn't campaign for the part. He wasn't nominated by other people. It was God's will that Paul would repent of his sin and trust Christ and represent him in missionary service all over the world. Paul was divinely chosen by God to take the message of God to the world. So he mentions his authority, and you might think, okay, well, he, he introduces himself. Why go to his authority? Why, why kind of remind them of his authority? And it's important to, to understand that Paul had never been to, the, to Colossae. He didn't found the church there. He, he had never, in all his missionary journeys, he had never traveled through this city. And so he had never personally interacted with these individuals. And so he, he wanted to, to, to right away let them know that he was the minister of God sharing the message of God, that, uh, that God chose him to share the message of God, and he's just writing to encourage them. He's just letting them know that there's nothing special about me, but God chose me to share his message, and I'm sharing it with you. I'm sharing it with you. And so he, he points to his authority, and his authority comes from God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he lets us know the intended audience of this, of this letter. He's, he's writing to the attention of the saints and siblings in the city of Colossae. In verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossae was a city in Phrygia, the Roman province of Asia, located 100 miles east of Ephesus where Paul ministered for three years. Today it would be Turkey. It was originally located at the intersection of the main north and south and east and west trade routes. And so it was an important, it was an important city, and, and, and a lot of people traveled through there as they traveled to trade and, 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 and sell their goods. So at one time it was an important area, but by Paul's time when he's writing, the major trade route has shifted to the city next door to Laodicea. And so now the city of Colossae has declined. It's not as prominent as, as it once was. And maybe, maybe that's why Paul never, never visited there. There were so many cities to see and go to, and, and, and he tried to pick the ones that maybe that was most influential. I don't know. But, but Paul had never been there. Colossae's population was generally Gentile, but it did have a large Jewish settlement. And so Paul is writing, he's writing to the Christians, to the church there in Colossae. 
And he calls them, first of all, he calls them saints. He identifies them as holy people, the holy people of God. They were followers of Jesus who through faith were saved from their sin, and they were set apart to serve him. And so he greets them and he says to to the holy people of God, to the saints there, saved and set apart for service. And he also calls them his spiritual siblings. He says, they're they're my faithful brothers and sisters. We're a faithful family of believers. We're dedicated to God and determined to love and serve him with our lives. And so so he's, he's writing this to the attention of the church in, in Colossae, the, the saints, the, the faithful siblings. And finally, we see the way that he addresses them. In verse 2, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. You know, sometimes the hardest part of writing a letter is starting it. Especially if you're trying to write like a reference letter for somebody that you don't know. It's like, how do you start that? You know, you, know, you go to the standby, to whom it may concern, because I have no clue who I'm writing to. You know, how do you start your letter? Well, here Paul starts and he addresses them. He says, grace and peace to you. And different countries have different greetings, right? Uh, one of the first things that Rod teaches us as we go to Mexico is that when you arrive in Mexico, it's important to do the greeting properly. And the way that is in Mexico, there are very social, very social uh, uh, society, very social. And so um, you have to, when you get somewhere, you need to greet everybody. You need to go around the room and shake everybody's hands. And we are so not like that in the United States. Matter of fact, we have been trying to practice that as we've met as as a group getting ready to go on our trip, and we often all forget to do that as we come, even in a small group of 20 of us. But that's the way it is in in that culture. You're supposed to greet everyone at least with a handshake and maybe with a kiss on the cheek. I mean, that's, that's how you're supposed to greet. That's the cultural greeting. And here Paul starts with the cultural greeting of the, of, the, of the Greek world. It was customary to begin your correspondence with a Greek word that meant greetings. And it came from a, a, a Greek word that, that the Greek word grace came from a, a, a version of the Greek word grace, and, and it meant greetings. And so he starts with the, the customary Greek greetings. Except it wasn't quite like the normal greeting. The normal greeting was to use a word, a word that was similar to grace, but Paul starts off and, he's, and he use, actually uses the word grace. He starts off and says, grace to you. He transforms the customary Greek greeting into a Christian greeting by starting off by the word grace. So right away in the correspondence, they are celebrating the saving grace of God. They're celebrating God's saving grace. It was an opportunity to celebrate how what God had done in their lives, to praise God for his grace, his unmerited favor that was received through a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And so as he's writing to the believers in Colossae, he starts off and he says, grace. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? Aren't you thankful for the grace that God that has saved us in Jesus Christ? So he starts off with grace, and then he added the other half of the greeting, the Greek word for peace that originally came from the Hebrew word shalom, which talks of one's total well-being because of God's 
presence. And so he starts off his, his greeting to, to the church, and he says, grace and peace. Celebrating God's grace that they've experienced and the peace of God. Paul says you can't have peace with God without the saving grace of God. He starts that off right in the beginning of his letter. Peace isn't based on the circumstances of our lives. It's based on a personal relationship with Jesus. And the only way sinners can find genuine peace with God is through saving, through the saving grace of God. And so Paul begins his letter and says, I'm thankful for God's grace that provides us peace. Grace and peace to you, my fellow saints, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's the greeting. That's the, uh, the pertinent information that we kind of need to remember. And now let's look at some, some, uh, some personal introspection as we look at the gospel. In verses 3 to 8, we see Paul's thankful for gospel transformation. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from, uh, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul is thankful for gospel transformation. Paul is grateful that God, to God that the Colossians received the gospel, and first, that they responded in faith. They received the gospel and they responded in faith. He's praising their faith in Christ. And faith means to be convinced or confident something is true and choose to trust in it. It's being convinced and confident something is true and choosing to trust in it. And faith always has an object that we trust in. Faith always has an object that we trust in. I was thinking a little bit about this this week as I, uh, each week I, I, I go to visit one of the youngest 96-year-old people I know on the planet, Helen Woods. And she is spunky and she is, is full of love and life and, and I love to go visit her. She's in Camp Hill in the, in the uh, manor care over in Camp Hill. And, and for the last month as I was traveling to visit her, I noticed, and you probably noticed too in the last month, just the amount of road construction that is all around us. And it's annoying, isn't it? You can't go anywhere without the roads being under construction. I guess it's that time of year. We had a rough winter, and so they're out and about and trying to fix the roads. And, and as I'm going to see Helen, every t- every, the, the road that I take, we need, I need to go under a bridge to get there. And for a few weeks on my journey, I noticed that this bridge was under construction. A matter of fact, the, the concrete supports under the bridge, they were, they were adding to the concrete and cutting out the parts that weren't, uh, I guess, that weren't good. And every time I drove under that bridge, I'm thinking, looks like they're doing some major work on these bridge supports. Is this road, should this road really be open? And every time I, I drove under that, that bridge, I had to have faith in the object, the bridge that, hey, these engineers knew what they were doing. This bridge was, was, was sturdy, and even though they were repairing it, it was going to hold, and it wouldn't collapse on me as I drove under it. I had to have faith in the bridge. 
that it was structurally sound. And you know what? The Christian faith, it's not a blind trust in anything. It's not a blind trust in anything. It's not a changing trust in everything. It's a confident belief in Jesus Christ for salvation. Christ is the object of our faith. It's the foundation of our faith, and it was the foundation of the Colossians' faith, Jesus Christ. The Colossians responded in faith, and so the question for introspection that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Have have I ever put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Not have I come to Sunday school, not have I come to church, not have I, have I ever given to church, have I ever been baptized, have I ever gone to junior church. No, have I ever at a moment put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have I recognized that I'm a sinner, my sin separates me from God, and the only way to be saved is to put my faith and trust in Jesus? It's the most important question we can answer. The Colossians responded to the gospel in faith, have we? Paul goes on talking of being thankful for transformation, and he says he's grateful to God that the Colossians not only received the gospel, but they reflected it in love. Paul is thanking them that they live lives of love. And for believers, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And if we truly trust and believe that he is our Savior, we'll turn from our sin and we'll obey him. We'll turn from our sin and we'll obey him. And the object of our faith impacts our obedience. What I believe to be correct influences the way that I carry out my life. And Paul is thankful that the Colossians' belief in God has affected their behavior, specifically that they've loved their fellow believers. He says their real living faith in Christ can be recognized by their love for other Christians. And in John 13, in John 13 34, and 35, Jesus says our selfless and sacrificial love for God's people not only reflects the love that God has for us, but it reveals our love for God as well. And all throughout the New Testament... Our love for God is coupled with our love for fellow believers in Jesus Christ. It was one of the main outworkings of God's grace in our life, that we extend that grace and love to other people. And it was happening here in Colossae. Genuine love is a decision. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. It's not an emotion. It's choosing to care for others in their circumstances by committing to serve them no matter the situation or cost. It's not an emotion, it's a decision. So saving faith produces obedience to its object, Jesus Christ. And one of the primary ways we obey is to love all our brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificially. Did you notice what it said about the Colossian Christians? That they loved all the brothers and sisters in Christ. All is a pretty powerful word. Not just the popular ones, not just the lovable ones. All means that every Christian that they knew or met in their everyday life, they extended love to all the believers that they knew. That's an amazing statement to make. And man, if we could be a church 
that would, that's known by the fact that we love all the believers. That we're all in the construction process. We're all a work in progress. But we love each other no matter what. They loved all the believers. And so the question for reflection is for us is simply this. Do I love all of God's people? Or maybe we could state it this way. Is my love for other believers based on what Christ did for me or what they did to me? That's a tough one, isn't it? Is my love for other believers based on what Christ did for me or is it based on what they have done to me? I mean, if they're nice to me, I'll extend love back. But if they ignore me or they've been mean to me or they've wronged me in some way, well, I'm, I'm not going to show love. Paul said the Colossians showed love to all believers. All believers. He was grateful for that. Paul's also grateful to God that the Colossians received the gospel and rested in hope. This week I came home one night and Zachary was downstairs on the couch and he was watching ESPN, and, uh, which isn't unusual. And, uh, and this time uh, it happened to be he was watching an ESPN documentary, 30 for 30, called Believe Land. And some of you, Carl uh, and Jim, would know this documentary probably very well because you're big Cleveland sports fans. And believe Lynn, the whole the whole premise of the documentary is that there had been no professional sports team in Cleveland, Ohio, that's won a championship since 1964. And it was and it was going on and interviewing the people and the fans of Cleveland, and 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 there was this hopelessness amidst the interview that hey, man, we haven't won. We've had chances. We have had good chances, and just haven't come through. And and uh, and there's just this hopelessness. And and. Uh, um, Zachary's a big Cleveland Cavs fan, and, and even though they lost the first game, he is not hopeless. He is determined that they're going to win the next four games. But here Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he says they're full of hope. They have hope, and not in their local sports team. They have hope. Hope talks of one's confident expectation. Because of the Colossians' personal trust in the gospel, it not only changed the present direction of their lives, it changed the eternal destination of their life. They had hope in God. Through the faith in the gospel, believers presently, we have fellowship with, with God and his people. But one day in heaven, we'll have perfect fellowship with God and perfect fellowship with all believers and our current experience of the body of Christ is just, a, is just a preview of what's to come in eternity. But he says they have hope. They have hope that, that, that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that, that they will one day spend eternity with him in heaven. And that hope impacted their daily life. They had hope because they were confident Christ was currently in heaven interceding for them. And confident confidently expecting that he would return again for them. Paul called the Christ's second coming the blessed hope in, in Titus 2. And they had that hope that Christ would return for them and they would be with him in heaven for eternity. You see, the hope changed their outlook. The hope changed their outlook. They had this confident belief that God was in control, that he cared for his children, that he had a plan and his plan was perfect, and ultimately, they would spend eternity with their God 
and Savior forever, worshiping him. So no matter what they faced, they had hope. So the question for introspection that we need to ask ourselves today is, does my hope in God refocus my life's perspective and priorities? Or maybe this way, does my hope in Christ color the way that I choose to carry out my life? Does my hope in Christ color the way I choose to carry out my life? It's very easy to live in this world and watch what's happening around us and see our culture declining and be hopeless. But as believers, we have hope. God is in control. He is in control. His, he has a perfect plan, and we need to trust that and believe that to know that he is at work in the world. And people are coming to know him as their Savior. So Paul is grateful to God for the, for the Colossians responding to, responding to, reflecting, and resting in the gospel. But he's also thankful to God for the growth of the gospel worldwide. Look at verse 6. In the same way, the gospel of God is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Paul's thankful for, to God for the growth of the gospel. And he tells us the gospel, has, uh, the gospel message has a global mission. The gospel message has a global mission. The gospel is not just the gospel for us in America. It's, it's for everyone in the world. It has a global mission. The good news of the gospel was, of Jesus Christ was, be, was to be communicated all over the world, not just in Colossae. And Jesus was clear in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel would be proclaimed in all the nations of the world. It will be proclaimed in all the nations of the world. And so this morning at the end of the service, we're going to have Eric and Kelly Schindler come forward and our Mexico team come forward, and we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for Eric and Kelly as they return to Taiwan and return to, to ministry there and to return to their focus of, of building relationships and sharing the gospel. And we're going to pray that the gospel would grow in their ministry. And we're going to pray for our Mexico team as they come in this leave next Friday to go and come alongside the church in Mexico City and to, and to help assist their ministry. We're going to pray that we'd have opportunity to share the gospel and people would respond in faith and the gospel would grow in Mexico City. Paul is saying that the gospel message has a global mission. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what am I doing to participate in that mission? Will I go? You might say, well, I'm too old, or I'm too busy, or I'm... Are they real excuses, or will I go? Can I encourage you to, if you've never had the opportunity, go on a short-term missions trip in the next two years to ask God to provide you an opportunity and go. But not all of us can go. So will I give? We might not be able to go at this time in our life, at this stage in our life, in this, in this uh, season of our life, but we can give. We can help support the ministry God's ministry around the world as they share the gospel, we can give. And we all can certainly pray. We can pray that 
that the gospel would grow globally, that people would hear it and respond to it, people who had never heard the gospel before, that they would have the opportunity to hear and respond and put their faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel has a global mission, but the gospel message is also grounded in grace. God's Grace is God's favor shown to undeserving sinners. And through faith in Christ, God grants us the forgiveness of sin and gives us eternal life with him. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's grace. His unmerited favor that he extends to us. We don't deserve it. But he's given it. BJ talked about all the other religions of the world and this morning, and their, their gospel of good works. That's what all the other religions basically are. It's this faulty notion that man can save themselves if they fulfill enough religious requirements, if they do enough good things that they can, they can somehow save themselves. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because of grace. God willingly saves sinners who trust in him. That's a message of grace. It's a message of grace. And if we've experienced God's grace, here's the question for us. Do I only want to personally experience God's grace and not extend it to others? Or it's kind of a clunky question, I know. So I was thinking about this a little bit this morning. I like this one better. Am I quick to accept his grace but slow to show it to others? The gospel is a message of grace. It's grounded in grace. Paul also says the gospel is a message that grows fruit internally and externally. John MacArthur says this about the gospel. The gospel produces fruit both in the internal, tra- in the internal transformation of individuals and also in the external growth of the church. The two concepts are interrelated. The spiritual growth of individuals will lead new converts being one to Christ. The living gospel is the power that transforms lives. And as it does, the witness of those transformed lives will produce fruit, including new converts. And as the gospel produces fruit in individual lives, its influence spreads. So the personal and internal impact of the gospel in our lives influences our external relationships. This morning, I want to show you a picture. It's a picture of Trey Robinson and his buddy Nathaniel, his neighbor, his, his, his friend Nathaniel. And about a, about a month ago, Dana got a text from Jen, and she was Texas mother lady, saying that, that Trey was talking to Nathaniel about Jesus. And Nathaniel trusted Jesus as his Savior. Nathaniel doesn't come from a family that goes to church, and, and, and he simply took the opportunity. It's one friend telling another friend about their best friend. And he shared the gospel with his buddy, and his buddy put his faith and trust in Jesus. Man, I could learn a lot from a third grader, couldn't you? I mean, what an amazing, amazing thing. But the gospel, it, it creates an internal transformation that should, should, should impact our external testimony. And you know what? I'm, 
I'm fairly confident that this wasn't the morning, this morning wasn't the only morning they've had a conversation about God or Jesus. I'm pretty confident that, that Nathaniel watched the way the Robinsons have lived their life, watched the way that Trey's lived his life, listened to the things that they've talked about their faith in Christ. And as they've lived out their faith, as they've been a positive testimony, Trey took the opportunity when Nathaniel asked to share about Jesus. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And I'd say, what does that have to do with the letter of Colossians? Well, remember, Paul didn't, he, he didn't start the church in Colossians. He, he didn't visit there. Epaphras is the one that started the church in Colossians. Epaphras was in Ephesus when Paul was ministering there in and, and those three years. And, and, was, and through Paul's ministry, Epaphras put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He put his faith in Christ, and then he carried the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae, and he started sharing it with his friends about his best friend, Jesus. And through him sharing, the church started. And so this internal transformation that happened in in Epaphras' life when he responded to the gospel, it impacted his external testimony. As he went back home, he shared about his, his faith in Christ, and other people believed in Jesus and the church started. The decision to trust Christ changed his external actions. It impacted his testimony. And here Epaphras is visiting Paul uh, as as Paul writes the the book of Colossians, and he's visiting him in Rome. He's reporting to him about how things are going at the church, and Paul is writing back, and and he is telling the, the church in Colossae, I'm so thankful for the faithfulness of Epaphras, that he responded to the gospel, and he took it back, and he shared it with you. He's been a faithful minister. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Does the testimony of my life explain the, gospel tra- the gospel's transformation of my life? Does the testimony of my life explain what God has done in my life? The transformation that's happened in my life. Do other people know that I'm a believer that don't go to church here? The people that I'm neighbors with, the people that I work with, do they know that I'm a believer? Does, can they see it in the way that I live my life, the testimony of my life, what I talk about? Epaphras did that. So Paul here in verses 3 through 8 is talking about the gospel, and then we'll quickly close up here this morning as we look at uh, the growth and just a few things just as we kind of focus on some application. In verses 9 to 14, Paul's talking about growth, and he's persistently praying for the people of God in Colossae. And look at what he prays for them for, just some amazing things. First of all, he prays that they would fully grasp and faithfully follow God's will. Verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The knowledge of the will of God is revealed in the word of God. It's not based on a believer's feeling. It's based on biblical facts. Paul says we need wisdom and understanding to identify it and apply it to our personal lives. And wisdom talks about finding those biblical principles in God's word. And understanding talks about about 
faithfully fulfilling those principles in our lives. And Paul says we have a helper in this process. The Holy Spirit who lives inside us not only helps us to understand God's Word, but He helps us to to apply it to our lives. And so Paul is praying that they they would fully grasp and faithfully follow God's will that's found in His Word. He goes on and he prays that the purpose of their lives would be to please God in verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. You know, followers of Christ delight God when they're devoted to dig into his word and do good works to serve him. We please God when the foundation of our lives is the Holy Scriptures and the focus of our lives is to living it out and serving our Savior. This morning we recognized our graduates here in our church family. We had them come forward and shared a little bit of some of their, their future plans and, and uh, some great things that they're looking forward to do. And, and those are great aspirations and great things to, uh, to choose to do. But you know, no matter what their plans are, as a church, you know what we should pray for? We should pray that they would choose to please God with their lives. Whether it's in criminal justice, whether it's in social work, whether it's in, in, in whatever they choose to do, May our prayer be that they would please God with their lives. Paul goes on and he prays that they would have power to persevere. In verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul knows that a life dedicated to Christ will experience difficulty. He understands that. So he's praying for endurance. He's praying for patience. Endurance talks about the strength to weather difficult circumstances and challenging uh, situations that they may face. And patience talks about enduring pain caused by other people. And Paul says, I'm praying that God will give you the power to endure those difficult circumstances and those difficult people. To not give up, but to continue to follow after Christ. And finally, the last thing that Paul, Paul prays for. He just praises God for their salvation. In verses 12 to 14, we see him praising God for their salvation, that they've been rescued from their sin and have a relationship with him. So Paul covers a lot of things in these first 14 verses in Colossians chapter 1. And as we close, just want to close with some application. First of all, have you ever come to the point where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. He's writing to believers. He's, he's encouraging the believers that the hope they have, and, and we don't have any hope if we don't have faith in Christ. And so he's, he, he's writing to them, and, and he's, he's encouraging them in their faith. And so the question is, have we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you've never done that this morning, we'd love to talk to you. Ray and some elders and myself will be up here after the service. You can, you can find us and talk to us. We'd love to share. Maybe we should have Trey come up here. He could share with you too. Uh, we'd love for, to share that with you. And, this, and the second thing, the area of application that really hit me for us believers is what are we persistently praying for? Not about you, but I was challenged as I look at Paul and his, his, his prayer life and his desire to pray for, for these believers that he's never met. 
And I was challenged, what do I pray for, for, for my family who, who know Jesus Christ, for my friends who know Jesus? How do, how do I pray for them? And I've been challenged that, to pray that they would fully grasp and faithfully follow God's will. I mean, what a great thing to, as you put your kids to bed at night to pray that. That they would choose to please God with their lives. That they would choose to, to persevere, that God would give them the power to persevere the difficult circumstances that they might face. But I don't know about you, but when I was finishing up my study and just seeing how Paul prayed for these Christians, I was, I was challenged that, you know what, I need to step up my prayer game. I need to pray not for, you know, Zachary's ingrown toenail or anything like that, but, I mean, that's important. But, but to really pray for their hearts and their lives. To pray for those people that we care about, those believers that we're close to, that, that, that man, that they would, they would please God with their lives, that they would persevere in hope, that they would seek to find God's will and his word and follow it. How do you pray for the believers that are closest to you. What a great challenge from Paul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great opportunity to, to look into your word this morning and to, to be challenged by these 14 verses and just a lot of different things going on in this as just as it kind of sets the scene for the, for the study of Romans and as, as we look at our own lives with some personal introspection and just seeing where we're at as we're under construction, as God is working in our hearts and lives and molding and shaping us to be the men and women that he desires us to be. And then just the challenge, what, what do we pray for? As believers, we have the, the amazing privilege to come alongside our fellow believers in Jesus Christ and to not only to encourage them, but to pray for them. So, Lord, for our, for, for our friends and family who are believers, may, may we seek to be more purposeful in our prayer lives. May we consistently pray that our loved ones would, would choose to dig into God's word to find his will and follow it. May they choose that no matter what they do with their lives, that they would choose above all things to please you with their life. And we might, may we pray that they would have your power to persevere when things get difficult. When times are hard and people let them down, may they know that you will never leave them or forsake them. And you'll give them the power to carry on Father, we thank you for your grace and your love that you showed us. We're thankful that through faith we can have a relationship with you. And forgive us when we take it for granted. Forgive us when the eternal transformation that's happened in our hearts and lives don't impact our external testimony. And Lord, this week as we leave, may we be focused on clearly communicating you in the words we say and the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.